Welcome to Saving UX. I'm your host, Jeremy Kriegel. Every episode, I talk to UX veterans about the challenges facing our practice and what we can do to make it better. This is the second half of my conversation with Jay Bloom, Senior Director in the Global Transformation Office at Red Hat and a PhD candidate at Carnegie Mellon University. If you missed part one, go back and listen to that. You can watch it on YouTube, you can listen on most podcast platforms, and you can do both at sucks.live. That's S-U-X for saving U-X dot live. And now the conclusion of my conversation with Jay Bloom. I'm going to go a little bit farther back in the conversation. You talked about uh, when you were CTO and becoming aware of what the product was doing to these folks who had to stay over the weekend. Yeah. Once you had that awareness, what changed? Like what actions did you take? How did the product change? And you know, as a CTO, yeah. how did you view maybe your responsibility in that scenario? Yeah, so I, I think that one of the things that I think about a lot, I still think about, you know, to this day is um, it's kind of like, uh, so the, a guy named Coburn would uh, kind of describes it a little bit as what's called a hexagonal architecture. Um, and the way to think about a hexagonal architecture, at least the way that I care about thinking about it, is this idea that most most people think of design as satisfying the user. Uh, and and you can almost always substitute the term user for consumer, as in like the end user or the person who is using the system at the end of the day. Um, and hexagonal architectures or other kind of uh, socio-technical systems theories um, basically say, well, uh, you know, there's a lot of people using that system. It's not just the end user. So the software engineers use that system. It's stru- it cognitively structures their day. Um, so... You could say things like um, technical debt is a description of a bad user experience for a developer. That's what it is. That's it's. I'm having a bad user experience with this design that we've had. Um, operators are using it. Uh, so things like um, observability and design for operation and things like that, things that are novel, relatively novel in IT are in fact not particularly novel in other design fields. So like, for instance, design for operability or design for manufacture is is like a primary concern of people like car manufacturers. They like, they design a car and then they take it apart and they figure out how the hell they're going to put it back together again efficiently so that they don't, you know, break people's, you know, knuckles or you know, ask people to lift things that are too heavy or so all of these things that uh, that the design um, extends to include not simply the end user, but all the all the people who are involved in in the use of the system. I think this is like one of the more critical uh, things that design needs to get better at or, or that people who design systems, whether they consider themselves to be designers are not need to get better at. And, and socio-technical systems theory, this idea um, that comes from the Tavistock Institute um, and originally ex- was explored by looking at ha- how people mined coal, um, addresses this specifically. And, and it basically talks a bit, a, a bit about this idea of transition, which is you know what I like to talk about as far as my PhD. And it basically argues that when you're trying to change a system, you know, again, since design is always propositional, it's always about changing what is. That's what it's doing. It's changing things, right? It's transitioning things from the current state to some future state. Um, And it basically says that 
you know, when you try to design a system with either only the technology in mind, so uh, generalized technology to mean all artifacts, um, or uh, the social system in my, only the social system in mind, so generalize that into like organizational design or whatever you want to call it. If you try to optimize them separately, they almost always fail. Um, they, this doesn't work. You have to jointly optimize things. Um, and so that ends up being a really interesting thing inside of I, inside of like an organization that's basically arguing like, if you want to adopt a new technology, you're going to have to change the policies and rules and social systems that consume the technology. Um, but outside of kind of an, an organization, it's an argument that says that design has to be involved in politics. It has to be involved in modifying policy. Um, that is part of getting things changed in the world. And, you know, you'll see, if you look around, I think that the most success, successful designers, and I'll use success uh, in this case as like a me as in measured by profits, like, you know, Tesla has been actively involved in either the manipulation of public policy, as in like the use of public policy, tax breaks, et cetera, to, to fund itself, and or the, the influence of policy to enable um, the widespread adoption of electric cars. That's what it's done. It, it couldn't have done that without public policy. And, you know, we need as designers to recognize these ideas that we need to be involved in those things. If we want to do large scale social change, we need to recognize that that's part of the activity. Part of the activity is to be involved in arguing for policy change. So. Right. And I say, even at the, at the local level, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I've introduced UX into a number of organizations and I, mean, I think, and, and maybe this is overly simplified and you might have a better metaphor for it. Um, or the uh, the RPV resources process values, and a lot of people think, well, UX. I just add a few people with this skill, and I get I get the benefits. Or maybe I can change some processes, but it ultimately it comes down to if you don't have the right culture, if you don't have the right policies in place, your UX, your nascent practice, isn't going to be successful and not going to give you what you look for. So in that sense, UX feels like a new technology in many organizations where. Yeah. They may not be thinking about the sort of systemic change that's going to be necessary in order to successfully integrate it. Yep. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think of like UX and the way you're describing UX is what's called a social practice. It's a set of skills that are centered around a set of material things like certain tools or certain artifacts uh, that produce a set of meanings, uh, things that people value, right? So there's an intersection between those three things, right? Um and, and this causes a weird, what I call a substitution problem. And so this, what I mean by a substitution problem is that normally in an organization or a social system, like there's an order to things. There's like things fit together in a certain kind of way. Yeah. So the easiest way to get a new thing in is to kind of swap it out for a different thing. So like uh, we, we, we have graphic designers. So you're saying we need UX designers. Okay, we'll swap the graphic designers out. We'll put some UX designers in there, right? Um, is that okay? Is like, would that be better? Well, yeah, it would be better to have some UX designers instead of just graphic designers. So let's let's do that. Okay, well, the problem with this is almost immediately for the rest of the organization, the meaning does not, you have new skills, maybe some new materials and artifacts that are being produced, but the meaning is consumed in the exact same way. People think, oh, that's a designer. They're designing things like 
the old designers designed things. Um, and, and, you know, uh, this happens all the time. Um, uh, the, in, in theory constraints, uh, there's, you know, Goldratt used to talk about it this way. He'd say, um, you know, he designed a set of algorithms to do material planning. Uh, and all, all that means is like, how much material does my factory need? Um, in order to produce whatever widget it's producing for the month. Because you have to order it and have it so that you don't run out of it, right? So traditionally, this had been done once a month, and this causes a large backlog of material or, you know, a queue or a buffer, however you want to use those different phrases. But you get excess materials laying around the factory. And so one of his observations about, like, finance and the way you finance the factory and the way you flow material through a factory is that you shouldn't overcommit. You shouldn't have too much material on site. So one of the ways to deal with that is to do the material planning more frequently, like yeah. do it once a week and then order materials once a week, right? So why was why were people doing it once a month? Well, part of the reason they were doing it once a month was because the algorithms took weeks to run. So you couldn't do it very frequently because it just took too long to do the calculations, right? So he designed an algorithm that could run much quicker. And he went around, started installing in factories, and he went back about six months later, and he goes to the factory, and he's like, so how's the new algorithm working? And they were like, eh, you know, it seems to be doing about the same as the old algorithm. Like, seems good, I guess. He's like, what do you mean? It should have, like, significantly changed the finances of the firm. And they were like, what? And he's like, okay, can I ask you a question? Like, how often are you running the algorithm? They're like, I don't know, once a month? <laughs> right? Um and he's like, oh, you've missed the whole thing. You've missed the whole thing. You've missed all of the value. Um, and so this, again, ends up being like the introduction of technologies, of new social practices and things like that need to be understood as a network of effect as opposed to a point of effect. Um, and so like one of the ways I try to describe this is like if you can't draw like a network diagram of your UX practice where the practice of UX touches outside of the designers into other parts of the organization and have the rest of the organization recognize that that graph makes some sense, you're probably going to have a hard time because you'll just be in a box the way you described it. And that becomes part of the activity, right? Um, and, and I think one of the ways to do this, by the way, is to actively try to define shared practices. And what I mean by shared practice is be very active about saying designers like, uh, I don't know, they can do wireframing by themselves, but, uh, you know, the uh, activity of, um, uh, unit, uh, of, of user testing is a, is a shared practice. It requires that there are, is a developer in the room with the designer and that they're doing it together because otherwise the results are less optimal. So what are the shared practices and who do you share the practices with? Um, and that's a way of starting to do those interventions, I think. I appreciate the way you also talked about practice and the process as where does it touch other processes in the organization? So much we see, you know, some model of design or really of anything else and it's isolated. 100%. And it doesn't highlight how it connects uh, to other parts of the organization. There's certainly a lot that design can do. We certainly can't do it alone. No, I think that's right. And and if you can't identify what will change by having a successful UX practice, or you can't identify what has changed, uh, you probably haven't been as successful as you could be, for sure. So I want to um, 
I want to pivot a little bit yep. uh, and talk about uh, design education. Mm. And again, I've been really interested in, in having this conversation because we both share the background at Carnegie Mellon. That was where I got my undergrad. And my undergrad was in art and English. I was writing poetry and making robotic sculpture. Yep. And somewhere along the way, very accidentally, I ended up running a web design firm hiring undergrads in the mid-90s. And while I understand that the HCI Institute had just started to exist, I don't think I'd actually heard of it until I, until I graduated. And so I had a very informal education. In fact, a lot of my experience and, and perspective on HCI was, was guided by installation art, interactive art, and, and having that experience be intuitive and not relying on a little card that you can put next to the, your, your, your exhibit to say this is how you're supposed to interact with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that very simple pet peeve of mine in the art world kind of drove a lot of my UX perspective. And then obviously it kind of drove a lot of my UX perspective. And then obviously, and now you're on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, also at Carnegie Mellon working on a PhD. So I'm curious, what is your perspective on design education? You said you look at things temporally, like over time, like, uh, I don't know if you had, if you thought about where design education is now. Um, what are we doing well? What should change? Um, what, what elements of maybe the work you're doing need to percolate into, you know, other programs, however you want to answer the question, frankly. (laughs) Yeah, cool. Um, so I did not do an undergraduate in design and I I don't have a master's in design. I only have a PhD in design. And I will also point out that I do design studies, uh, study it as a philosopher or as uh, kind of from the perspective of philosophy. So my, my views on it are a little strange. Uh, but what I would say is um, I think, you know, design is in high demand. So it's not in, on one, on one level, it's not in a crisis on one level. Like I think it's a good investment for, for people who want to have a six figure salary job when they graduate designs, especially a master's, is a pretty good place to go and spend a bit of time and you probably have a really good job afterwards. Um, but design, as I kind of pointed out, I think is in crisis. I think that um, the impact of design on the world from the perspective of, for instance, the environmental crisis, uh, et cetera, is, is A, negative right now, but B, cr- it's critical that we redirect the very practices that have created the current conditions to, to create better conditions because the, the thing that's going to solve the environmental crisis is design. That's what, what will, what will solve the environmental crisis, what will have a significant impact on, on the, you know, sustainability of our societies and the systems around us is design is, is actually getting, um, the ideas that I tried to kind of point out earlier, um, getting those ideas taken seriously, not only by designers so that they understand what they're doing a little bit better, but by the rest of the university and by businesses, et cetera, that that's, what's going to, that's, what's going to have a significant impact on the world. And the reason I say that is, is this, um, we have used science and scientific policy, uh, creation for the last 200 years to make most of our political decisions about large scale programs. And uh, we've been, I think, reasonably good at being rational in that frame about what we're doing. 
And so if we continue to be rational in that way, we will continue to get the type of results that we've got. Um, and, you know, people can look around and make decisions about whether they like those results or not. Uh, I would suggest that um, there have certainly been significant um, positive impacts from, uh, you know, the scientific revolution, uh, the enlightenment, et cetera. But the question ends up being like, really, like, can we continue down this path? Or in fact, have we kind of consumed the value that that uh, was on offer and now we're kind of digging a grave instead? Um, and so, you know, one of the ways I try to explain this and one of the things that I, I would hope that uh, we get better at training designers to think about is, um, is this. The, the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution were based on the idea that the primary shaping of the human experience uh, is nature, right? Like uh, what, what, what the objection that the Enlightenment had was that we should stop using um, fairy tales about uh, bearded men in the sky uh, to drive our decision making. Um, or and or the interpretation of such tales by other bearded men in temples um, that, that that there should be an objective way that every individual should be able to evaluate uh, what's happening around them and that that should be the way that rational decisions are made um, and this had is obviously had a radical impact on the world and uh, not not all bad I would say Um but the question ends up being this, um, how much nature is around you right now? Like how much of the systems that you interact with are natural systems? Uh, at least natural systems as Copernicus might think of them. Um, and the answer I think is, you know, for most people, if they look up from their desk right now, they're watching me rant about random stuff or listening <laughs> to me rant. Almost everything around them will be artificial. Almost everything around them will be the result of, of design. Um, and the problem is that like the systems of, of rationality that science built assumed a reasonable level of objectivity, that there is a reasonable amount, a, a reasonable lack of subjectivity involved in the way this came up about, right? There's no theological condition to it. So like, for instance, like you it's a mistake to think of evolution as having an end state, right? It's like evolution doesn't have end states in mind. It just does what it does. It's natural, right? Well, uh, almost nothing around you got the way it is without some human making a decision that was subjective. They thought it would be better that way. You thought it would be better that way. You put your desk there because you thought, well, I like it there. Um, and as a result, the tools of rationality, the tools of decision-making that are built around kind of a, a sense of non-theological naturalness uh, probably don't work very well in a system that is primarily artificial. That, that does, because the way I usually just try to describe it is like in, in, in science, in theory, when you dig down into like what caused this to happen you should get another objective cause and there's some problems with that you know around kind of like how do you ever get to the end of the causal chain but at minimum like most of the time you get these objective causes in science in in an artificial system frequently you get like why is this like this this is like this because bill likes it like that <laughs> okay 
How did Bill decided he liked it like that? Well, because Sarah taught Bill to do that. And then Sarah also learned from Bill. So she taught somebody like there's these loops and it's like, it's impossible to disentangle using the traditional rational uh, tool set. So this is like, in a weird way, it's not an argument against science. It's not saying that we shouldn't be rational. It's saying that we need to understand or create a new rationality. We need to have a new way of thinking about the world and being rational and having a new way of saying, for instance, you know, you asked several times already, like, how do you explain to your boss what you're doing? We will be successful in kind of understanding design better as a society when your boss takes design um, decisions, design rationality, as seriously as he would take a scientific finding. Um, and that it would be just a different kind of rationality, that, that it would be a different form of explanation of the world and that they would go, oh, that's okay, great. And maybe I have to balance that against the scientific rationality. Um, and maybe, you know, from, from one perspective, maybe scientific rationality becomes a set of constraints in which the design rationalities can play out. Um, you can't do things that fight against EMC equals uh, uh, E equals right, MC yeah. squared. But inside of that constraint, you can do lots of things. Um, so anyway, I think that might be some of the stuff that I would be really interested in seeing, because I think that's the way we transition to more sustainable systems is to, I mean, one of the ways I try to say it is this like, um, if you were trained as a scientist, what you're trained to do is to have a certain perspective of objects. You, you look at objects objectively. You look at them as being non-theological, blah, 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 right? Um, what we're missing is a way of taking seriously um, designers looking at things theologically and saying that that's valid, that, that it's, it's entirely valid to look at an object and say what it could be. Right now, that's, that's entirely discounted. People think that's totally irrational. It doesn't make any sense. But that is what design does. And it's important because that's how we change the world um, and how we'll become better at understanding the systems that we've created. So you've, so you've brought up a number of concepts from you know, impact on the environment and social systems and different types of rationality or different approach to rationality, um, different way of thinking about design. Do you see, like some of them, are making their way into um, the social fabric, and, and we're talking about these things more. Some of these sound newer. Do you see any of these making their way into design education, or are they only coming in through the through the, the social sphere? So um, at, at CMU right now, uh, there's like an onion skin version of this, right? So like at a, as an undergrad, you, you pretty much kind of, you, you, you start with symbol design and like aesthetic design and you move out to product design. Um, and then you start getting a little bit of social design involved. Um, as a, as a, as a master's, you do product and then social, and then you do transition and transition is, is largely what I'm talking about, these long-scale, big-change things. So I think the answer is, like, how many universities have engaged in transition design, this new idea of the way we think about large-scale systems change? Um, and so I was in the first cohort of PhDs 
studying transition design, starting at CMU eight years ago. And in that eight years, that field has expanded significantly to include several other universities where you can go and start to learn about these ideas. Cool. The one thing I would say about it, though, is this. I think that the idea of what we call the sustainment or, uh, you know, the idea of creating sustainable systems, um, we think of it as a project on the scale of the Enlightenment. In other words, it's a two, 300-year-long project. It's not a project that will be solved in the near future, and we think that we're eight years into it. So the things we're trying to do right now are what early Enlightenment philosophers did, which is to open the questions. Can I make these questions clear enough that people will continue to engage in the questions over the next two to 300 years in order to come to understand uh, what, what, what it is to be rational as a designer, what, what that might mean. Um, and that's really what we're trying to get to. to some extent. Dude, I don't want to wait 200, 300 years for this. <laughs> we keep saying in technology <laughs> that we go through shorter and shorter cycles of things. <laughs> we're working on it. Try, try to get as fast as we can. I, it's, I, I, I should just finish my dissertation first because I'm okay. in my eighth year of my dissertation. So, uh, Every, all, everybody else from my cohort graduated, most of them graduated four years ago. Some of them graduated three, but I, I should probably get my dissertation done. I'm, I'm, I'm into the slow, slow work. No, don't take 200 years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, maybe before we leave this topic, you know, I think a PhD in design is fairly new, newish phenomenon. Um, what would you say to someone who might be, maybe hadn't heard of it before, but might consider pursuing such a direction, why, why would you advise someone to say, yes, a PhD in design is a good option for you? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting. Uh, first of all, like in the United States, there are two or three programs in, uh, at the level of PhD in design, um, without causing a lot of silly fights. Uh, they're subtly different about what their opinion about what design is. Some sure. of them are more engineering based and some of them are, you know, the transition design stuff is much more kind of um, designerly uh, based or uh, I guess, um, and more social, I guess is a term that you might use. Um, but in Europe, there's quite a few uh, PhD programs in design. Um, and, and you can see some of the impact of that. I think in Europe, uh, design is uh, better integrated into like government systems and things like that. People do, um, you know, service design in government uh, in, in Europe because there's this richer understanding over there, I think, of design, uh, the impact of design or the way to do that. Um, it used to be the terminal degree in design was a master's degree, so you could teach. I, I do think that with the rise of several different PhD programs in the United States, you will see a couple more PhD programs arise, and I think that that will become a terminal degree eventually. In other words, you'll have to have a PhD to, to teach design um, in, in some of the larger universities. Mm -hmm. So that might be one reason to do it. Um, in general, my suggestion about all graduate school is like, Two things. One, um, it's a time to think, and it's a time to think outside of the pressures of a capitalist system. Uh, so that's one thing. And then the second thing is go go work for go work with or for someone that you want to learn from. I think like don't just get a PhD in abstraction. You have to like you are going to spend 
a lot of time uh, dealing with a particular person or a couple people who have a lot of control over uh, your life and uh, and whether you've frankly whether you feel successful or not because you know the pressures of getting a PhD often have to do with um, not wanting to dis- disappoint yourself or others, uh, frankly. So that's a big, big aspect of it. I went, I went to CMU um, specifically to study with a guy named Cameron Duncan Wise, who um, shared my uh, interest in phenomenology and Heideggerian theory. Um, and uh, I, I don't regret a minute of being able to hang out with him. I really have enjoyed uh, uh, that experience. And um, even though he left uh, the university before I could finish my dissertation um that 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 has to sustain me significantly um so i would suggest that's a big 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 consideration uh master's degrees um i think are great for people who are trying to transition into design mid-career uh for people who are interested in in that extra depth that you can get from thinking through some of these philosophical issues um people who really want to do phds should should be people who really really want to teach and really want to help other people understand or progress these ideas and i think i think it's a lot of fun and it was really uh like one of the highlights of my career to to hang out and get my phd so well i think there's a lot of a lot of great stuff in there one more topic maybe before we wrap up um you sort of mentioned the uh the bearded guys uh, as decision makers earlier on your conversation and the irony was lost on me that this conversation is taking place between, uh, two, two bearded white dudes. Um, but one element of diversity that I know is not always obvious is along the lines of neurodiversity, which is starting to be talked about and, and something that, uh, again, you and I share. So I was wondering if you might be willing to speak about how that has affected your professional life, both on the baby pros, cons, how you adapted to that, and uh, maybe even in, in the academic world as well? Sure. So um, I, I'm neurodiverse. I, uh, I have dyslexia. Um, I was diagnosed when I was uh, in like eighth grade. Um, I had this really interesting, I, I, I was lucky I got diagnosed at a very, very good school, landmark uh, school. and. Um, a very interesting experience where basically the way it was kind of explained to me was kind of like brain in the box theory, which is kind of like, you know, your brain is in your head and it's not connected to your body, like your ears and your eyes and your mouth and your senses in the same way it's connected with other people. And so you get information comes into your body and into your mind in a, in a way that's unique to you. It's not unique to people with dyslexia, I guess. Um, but dyslexia, by the way, is like cancer. It's like, there's a lot of different things in that box. Um, so I, I kind of spent like my high school career being like, um, I'm kind of like, I'm cognitively fucked up in a way that I can't fix Like There's nothing that it's like, it's not like, uh, I could get a different drug and it would help me. Like they basically have explained to me that I can't fix this. Um, and I spent a lot of time early in my career um, with this, you know, constant like think different was a big thing uh, in the 90s. Um, and I would constantly be saying to people, you don't really mean that. And they'd be like, what do you mean? I was like, I think differently. 
And when I do it in front of you, you don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, I think, um, I think it's interesting right now because this idea of neurodivergence and kind of um, allyship with it, but also um, kind of uh, being um, an, a self-advocate has become much more, uh, mu- much less pathologized. People are starting to talk about these things without pathologizing them. Um, and for me, it, like in, in, in a couple different ways, uh, a, if you haven't noticed listening to me just talk, I, I I have just a incredibly wide gamut of things that I am interested in, and I can jump from one to the other quite quickly, and sometimes it makes people frustrated. Um, so <laughs> I've had to learn to control that a little bit, um, and that's been a big challenge for me always. Um, but as a PhD student um, at CMU, one of the things that we've worked, one of the reasons it's taken me so long to get my PhD Uh, to finish my PhD is it takes me a bit longer to read. Well, um, A, it takes me a bit longer to read, um, but B, I like to read more than other people do. So it takes me a little bit longer, but also like I'm the person who goes to the bottom of every footnote and then reads the three books that lead from that footnote. Um, And so that drives my professors a little bit crazy. They're like, you have to just limit the amount of things you're consuming. It's, (laughs) It's not helping. Um, but B, we've really worked uh, to redesign um, the, P, the the dissertation for, for to be uh, something that's useful to me. And so one of the things that I'm working a lot on um, is basically like my dissertation is taking the form of a Zettelkasten, which is like a, a network of notes as opposed to a traditional essay. Hmm. And part of that... Um, is because it allows me to focus um, on small objects one at a time and kind of completely understand them and network them together. Um, and that, I think, has been really interesting as, as, um, as, as a way of rethinking the, rethinking the thesis as a statement of what I know right now and then saying instead of what I know being an essay, it is a network of notes and information this is what I know right now. This is how, and th- not only this is what I know, but this is the my practice of how I know it, um, and not trying to like, um, not trying to reshape that into a dissertation like a, a neurotypical person might create, which would be a, a longer form essay or something like that. That's so that's, that's been really interesting, um, and and I and I think it's really exciting to me because it's interesting on multiple levels as far as like. Um, I, I use, um, source code control on it. So because I'm interested in temporality, one of the things I can do is show you the evolution of the research itself. I can go backwards and forwards in time. Um, I can show you different moments and the, hopefully when I defend my dissertation, the actual defense will be of a particular check-in. This is what I'm defending this check-in. And then after that, um, I will continue, hopefully, to use the system that I designed for my dissertation for the rest of my career. Um, And it will be something that people can come back to later and be like, this is the dissertation and that's what it grew into as a body of knowledge over time. Um, And they can see how that evolves. And I think that that in and of itself is a unique kind of contribution to the way of kind of capturing knowledge, I think. so. I mean, it's fascinating on so many levels, both in the, you know, 
right? You know, as we've sort of come of age in the uh, with technology with the internet, that was the whole point, right? We're we're connecting disparate pieces of information in a, in a logical way, and that your work is presenting a thesis in that model seems completely modern and apropos. Um, and the the temporal aspect as well, being able to trace that that evolution, it reminds me. You know, might be interested. A friend of mine at Oxford has uh, has. Uh, he, he runs a project that looks at the U.S. Constitution mm -hmm. and traces the evolution over time so you can see how different clauses evolved. It wasn't just that it came out fully formed. That's right. There's a history to it, yep. and that evolution gives us insight into how it was formed. And I imagine you get a lot of that from yep. looking think, back I, you at know, your work. Yeah, one of the things, so, the, you know, the idea is called digital humanities, which is the guy that Oxford is is probably would identify as a, as a digital humanities person, and uh, I, which is a really cool set of projects. And one of the things that I've been doing with the dissertation is trying to think of like, how would I, how would I design it as if it had been designed by a digital humanity, somebody who was into digital humanities to answer those types of questions. Like how do these things link? How do they morph? How do they change? How would someone come to understand the train of thought through time um, as opposed to, um, you know, uh, frankly, most essays are attempts to appear like this is a truthful statement that should withstand the test of time. More, This is more like this is a body of knowledge as it moves through time. And that's uh, more interesting to me um, in my research. Um, there's, a, there's a really weird version of this, which basically says there's a concept called prefiguration. And it basically says that in a system where the means become the ends, in other words, where how you make something is the system itself, right? So it, it, the, the process of making the thing is what is the thing itself, yeah? You could argue that a lot of digital work is this, right? It's like the process is the thing that's produced. Um, you can't change the ends without changing the means. You have to change the means themselves. So the means prefigure the ends. Um, and so the question for me for a lot of, of the dissertation has been how could I perform the ideas in the dissertation itself? Like not only what the dissertation is about, but how it was created should be coherent uh, with itself. And uh, that little weird brain puzzle uh, cost me about two years of my life. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, this has been great. If folks want to follow you, learn more about your work, where's the best place online for, for people to look you up? So jabe.co, J-A-B-E dot C-O is my blog that gets updated once every 20 years. Um, and Cytain, uh, C-Y-E-T-A-I-N uh, on Twitter, uh, which gets updated every 30 minutes or so. <laughs> <laughs> so we will put links to that in the show notes, as well as all the things that you've hit on, which is going to be, I think, a pretty exhaustive list. I think it, <laughs> you'll be sending a lot of us down the footnote rat holes, uh, if you will. Excellent. But um Dave, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Um, really appreciate everything you shared. Again, I think it's going to be very valuable for a lot of folks. Uh, if you enjoyed this, don't forget to subscribe. You can do that on the website for old-fashioned emails or on YouTube or whatever podcast platform you're listening to. And if you think someone else would like it, let them know. Share it. Um, so again, I just wanted one more time, thank you for being with me. And uh, until next time, I'm Jeremy Kriegel. This has been Saving UX. Thanks, Jeremy. It was awesome to be here, man. Bye.